0: Good evening. Welcome back for our final installment of John Clayton's "Does God Exist" series. Uh, these will be in the library. This is all of DVDs that we've talked about this uh, throughout this series, uh, and we are going to put these in the library for you uh, today. We'll be talking about the evidence for Jesus as well as what kind of faith do you have? So we'll be showing two lessons again today. Uh, as we close out this series, these are the final two lessons. But if you'd like to go back and review these and you want the DVDs, you can borrow those out of our library or you can um, download them off, off the Internet. They are um, You can watch them right, all, right online for free. So um, I think that's uh, – you may have to Google that, but I think it's doesgodexist.tv. <clears throat> We also have a couple more that are in this uh, by the same author. Uh, this is the Canyonlands, um, the Grand Canyon and Zion Canyon by John Clayton. Uh, you can listen to that. I haven't listened to this one, um, but uh, you can go back and listen to this. This will also be in our library uh, tonight. After I get down here, we're gonna, I'm going to go put these in the library. This is Biblically Archaeology. Um, by Harvey, by Doctor Harvey Porter, um, and it is also in the Does God Exist um, series uh, of of lessons. Uh, so this looks really interesting too. Um, but if you want to listen to this one, uh, it'll be in the library as well. All right, uh, tonight, if you don't already know, we are starting back our normal Wednesday night devotional. It'll just be. A devotional. We're not doing classes just yet. Hopefully, those will be coming very soon in the, in the near future. But for tonight, right now, uh, at 7 o'clock tonight, we'll be starting our uh, Wednesday evening devotionals. Uh, so we'll sing, we'll pray, we'll, we'll have a short devotional. In fact, uh, Rick is going to be bringing us the devotional thought for tonight, and it's coming uh, from or Does God Exist series, uh, his thoughts there kind of serve as a wrap up as well as an invitation uh, for for the evening. But the thoughts come from from uh, John Clayton's series here, so uh, we are so looking forward to that. And uh, and without further ado, let's just dive right in to the uh, series. All right? Can me just.
1: Why do we accept the Bible? We've been looking at hard evidence, evidence that has to do with science, evidence that has to do with discussions about the credibility of biblical writings, some of the modern tools that those of us who are educators deal with and use in working with students. But we really haven't dealt with the person, Jesus Christ. Did Jesus really live? Was he really what the Bible says he was? There are all kinds of approaches to this. The father was an atheist, and he accepted the idea that there was a great teacher, a great ancient person like Socrates or Plato. But he did not believe that it was any more than that. Some even tried to deny the historical Jesus to say, well, there really never was a man named Jesus Christ. There have also been those who have tried in recent years to say, well, he was just a pulled-up figure. And so we've had discussions about whether he was married, and there have been all kinds of discussions about Gnosticism. I'm not a historian. My training is in physics and chemistry and geology and astronomy. But even as a layperson, There are some solid reasons that have led me to believe that Jesus Christ lived, did what the Bible says he did, was in fact the Son of God, as the Bible claims, and that this is not a myth. Those that are experts in history have convinced me that it is a historical fact, one that cannot be rationally denied. And so I'd like to share for just a few minutes here a couple of those reasons to me as a layperson that make sense in believing that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that when Jesus says, He who comes to the Father must come by me, that he really is saying something that we can credibly believe. The first area that I'd like to call to your attention is what we might refer to as secular records. Now what we mean by secular records is nothing connected with the Bible. Historical figures that can be documented as having lived at the same time in which the events we're talking about took place. And again, since I'm not a historian, I will pretty much go through this rather quickly and then give you some references of people who are experts in this area and who can help you, if you wish to pursue it, to see just how strong that evidence is. But there were historians who lived at the time. I mean, Thalleus, AD 52, Phlegon, the, the AD 140 Chronicles. As a matter of fact, there are some 6,000 books which back this historian who lived at that time. There are Roman rulers who lived at this time. Now, Josephus is one of the most frequently quoted, and there's been debates about Josephus. He was a consulate for Jerusalem rabbis at the age of 13, so he came from a Jewish background. He was recognized by the Romans for his scholarship. Book 18 details uh, John the Baptist and his role. Book 20 of his writings gives the record of James, tells of Annas and having James stoned, now, there are people say, oh, yeah, but that's, that, that's all been altered by Christians. So you people say, well, it's just too dubious of a biography to be accepted. Well, historians have studied this, and there's no question that there were some of the writings of Josephus that were edited, modified by later Christian writers. But there's enough of the original documents and there's enough material concerning other writings of Josephus to believe that he is a credible historical source connected with the Romans. Pliny the Younger gives data on Christians, and this was not a believer, this was not a supporter of Christianity, this was someone who was hostile to the Christian message. Cornelius Tacitus, who was a friend of Pliny, tells all kinds of additional information. We have all these lists of people here from different backgrounds that were Roman rulers and writers of the time. These are secular writers. And what I'm trying to do here is to get you to get a, a, a handle on how many of these people there are. And even though I'm not a historian, even though I don't probably know how to pronounce their names even correctly, I can see the numbers. I have read the writings. I have seen just how much documentation there is. There are Jewish rabbis who gave verification that Jesus was alive, they verify Christ, they verify his disciples, and they talk in some cases about even concerns about the claims that Jesus was making. These are Jewish writers. They would not be mentioning this if they didn't have some recognition of the factual nature of it. So as I say I'm not a historian but I want you to notice something. We've listed quite a few sources here. How many Secular writers do we have that, that verify that a man named Plato lived? I'm told by historians there are eight. How many historical writers verify that a man named Socrates lived? I'm told by historical writers and people who are trained in this field that there are ten. But there are over a thousand separate writers that verify that Jesus Christ not only lived, but that he did the things that the Bible says he did. You know, I I don't think I've ever met a a skeptic or an atheist who would deny that Plato lived. I don't think I've ever met one that would deny that Socrates lived. And yet we find people denying that Jesus Christ lived. And this is why I say, I'm not trained as a historian, but I am a logical thinking person, I believe, and I can recognize the fact that when I have a thousand secular writers recording this, that I can rationally believe it. There are church writers who also verify the credibility of Christ. Now, the reason that I have sort of separated this is because skeptics say, well, yeah, but they've got a vested interest. Well, that's probably true, except for the fact that these writers give details that are verified by non-Christian writers. And in some cases, they had everything to lose by verifying that they were Christian and that they followed Jesus Christ. Justin Martyr has a reference to the acts recorded under Pontius Pilate. He refers to Psalms 22 and verse 16 about casting lots for the garments of Jesus he'd been a follower of Plato earlier in his life but he records the census at the time of Jesus birth and he records having had seen the registration of Mary and Joseph Tertullian in AD 160 quotes the new testament over 7000 times 3800 of those coming from the gospels now now these are christian writers they're people that were associated with the church But the volume of scholarship connected with what they are able to say is undeniable. And the list goes on and on and on. I mean, as you look down this list that I have in front of you right now, all of those individuals wrote extensively. It's not just an occasional piece or a separate writing. It is heavy documentation of writers that say, yeah, this actually happened. And in some cases, they were apologists. In other words, they gave reasons for believing that Jesus lived. So the volume of documentation that verifies that Jesus lived, that he did the things that the Bible says he did, that his disciples lived, that they did the things that they said they did, it makes it virtually impossible to deny the reality of the life of Jesus Christ. I'm giving you a list of some sources here. These are people that know far more than I do about the historical verification for Jesus Christ. And if you have not studied these books, I would encourage you to read for yourself what the evidence is. Because I think you'll find that the evidence is extremely, totally, and completely beyond any reasonable denial. So we're talking about verification of the historical Jesus from sources outside the Bible. The evidence is massive. The scholarship is huge. But the second area that I would offer to you is archaeological discoveries. Now archaeology is a an interesting field. Like very few archaeologists come to a discussion of this sort of material without some bias. And so you can find people on all sides of the issues. But what I'd encourage you to do is to look at the history of archaeology and what nobody can deny has been said about the archaeological evidence. And let me give you one of my favorite examples of this. In Luke the second chapter we see a very familiar passage that talks about the time in which Jesus was born. About that time there was a decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of the whole empire Now notice what happens here. It tells us when. This was the first registration of its kind and it took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, here is a historical figure. And everyone went to his hometown to be registered. That can be easily documented historically. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Okay, so there's... Pretty good documentation here of many of these events. Three facts. Number one, this was done by sending people back to their home city. We can verify that archaeologically. But here's the interesting thing. It was done when Jesus was born. Now I'm aware that there is controversy about when Jesus was born, but the controversy is over a period of one or two or three years. We're not talking any extensive period of time. And in this case, it is said that this was done when Quirinius was governor of Syria. What's the problem? And so I've seen secular writers and atheists say, well, (laughs) clearly Jesus was not born when the Bible says he was. Clearly, this is a mistake. Well, the only problem with that is that this man was governor twice. Now, again, I'm a physicist, I'm a chemist, I'm a geologist, I'm an astronomer. I deal with those kinds of sciences. So I'm no expert in this area and I would not encourage you to take anything I say in this area seriously without checking it out. But what's interesting about this is that you can look at the historical people that have written, people who are experts in this field, and you can see the history of when this event took place. And this is true over and over in archaeology. There are many cases where archaeologists said, well, a nation like the Hittites never lived. And then later, it was proven they did live. For years, actually for decades, there have been people who say, well, David's a myth. David never lived. All those stories in the Bible are just stuff somebody made up. Well, in the last two years, and we're talking here in the 21st century, there have been some new discoveries that indicate, yeah, this guy did live. And we may have some artistic views that make it look like he was living in some kind of a palatial mansion, which was not the case at all. But the remains of his palace have been apparently found. And more and more exterior evidence has been discovered on a virtual daily basis. And probably in five years we're going to have to update this video and say, okay, here's the new evidence. But again, I would encourage you to read the scholars who are writing on this. Discussions that try to denigrate the Bible, by saying there's no archaeological support for these things that have happened, are dated. And things are found that do verify the Bible. Not too many years ago, there was a discovery of a house that had a label in it, a way of determining who the house belonged to, and it was Simon the Tanner. And we're reminded of Acts the 10th chapter and the 6th verse in which this house is referenced. So there is archaeological evidence that tells us that what the biblical record says about Jesus Christ is true. So when the atheist says, well, you got the wrong date, the fact of the matter is that that's not the case. The third I'd like to call to your attention that supports my belief that Jesus Christ did live, that he was the Son of God, and he was exactly what the Bible says he was, is prophecy and fulfillment. And here we get into more of a the theological area. I'd like to call your attention to a couple of things. You can verify the dates of the Old Testament prophecies. That's not a point of debate. Carbon 14 dating has given us some excellent dates for things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that back up much of the dating situations about the early writings concerning the coming of Jesus. A couple of these are that he would come when the temple was still standing. And you can see the references. And look them up, see for yourself. It says that he would come in the last days and the context tells us it was the last days of the Roman Empire. And we know again that that was the case. It was said that he would come when Judah was a ruling tribe. And if you know Old Testament history, you know the credibility of that statement. His genetic background was given, his genealogy was given, that he would come from Abraham and Isaac and David, that all of these would be of the tribe of Judah. And specific events happened 400 years after they were prophesied. So there's like 400 years between the passages that we have talked about in Malachi and Isaiah and when they actually took place. The method by which Jesus would confirm his message was by miracles. And Isaiah talks about that in Isaiah 35, beginning with verse 5. It was prophesied he would come and be rejected by the Jews, by brethren, Psalms and Zechariah, and it would even be prophesied that he would be sold for 30 pieces of silver. You know, I made a reference back in our early presentations when we sort of skimmed the surface of the evidence for the inspiration of the Bible, that it's so difficult to write something that will make sense in the future. And the example I gave was a term paper I wrote in high school in which I wrote about the the jock in our graduating class. And if you remember, I told you (laughs) I described him as a very gay individual. Well, that was in the 1950s. Fifty years later, the term gay has a different meaning. Imagine writing something that would say, okay, this guy who hasn't been born yet will die and he will be sold out by one of his disciples for 30 pieces of silver. And you're going to tell me that's likely to happen? That there's nothing that would suggest to you that the claim is actually true? I think it's important to realize that it is even more specific than that. Because it was prophesied that he would be crucified. And again, these passages are back in Isaiah, in the old, old writings. It was prophesied that he would be scourged. If you haven't read Isaiah and looked at these passages, please do so. It was prophesied that his clothing would be gambled for. I mean, these are not normal situations. These are abnormal events in his life prophesied like 400 years before the event takes place or more. And here's one that's particularly interesting. His birthplace was said to be Bethlehem Ephrata. That's Micah 5 and verse 2. But did you know there's two Bethlehems? I live in a town called South Bend, Indiana. But (laughs) I've had a lot of people say, well, I live in South Bend. They said, oh, you live in Oregon. No, no, I know there's a South Bend in Oregon. Oh, well, you live in South Bend, Arkansas. No, I know there's one in Arkansas. (laughs) The point is, a name like South Bend can be lots of different places, lots of different rivers have South Bends in them. And lots of ancient cities had the name Bethlehem. So when the prophecy is made in Micah 5 and verse 2, it's not the same Bethlehem that Joshua talks about in Joshua 19 and verse 15. That's a different town in a different place. And yet in these writings, hundreds and hundreds of years before the event takes place, the correct identification is given. And this is somehow an accident? This is luck? Or it's contrived? I think the evidence is that this is in fact a prophecy that has been fulfilled by things far beyond what chance or arrangement could possibly suggest. The fourth reason I'd like to suggest to you that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that He is everything the Bible says He was, is the uniqueness of His teachings. And quite frankly, this has more of an impact upon me personally than anything else. I lived as an atheist. My father was a disciple, if you will, of John Dewey. I was raised in a home emphasized the philosophy of the day in which I lived. And so I read all of those writings. I was fed things that denigrated Christianity. But when I started reading the Bible, I saw things that were unique. Things that just wouldn't make sense. Didn't make sense to me as an atheist. The fact that Jesus claimed deity in John 1 and verse 14, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, that didn't make any sense to me. The fact that Jesus spoke on his own authority. You know, one of the things that's interesting about all of great historical religious figures is that they express doubt about their authority. But Jesus spoke on his own authority. People in Jesus' day were amazed. Nobody talks like this man talks then. Even the Romans said that. And his message would be confirmed by miracles. C.S. Lewis gave us a description of this. And I love this description, and I think it's absolutely true. If you haven't seen this, let's just look at it for a minute. A man who was merely a man, and who said the sort of things Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. See, that's what my father told me. Well, okay, he had some good moral ideas. Lewis goes on and says he'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that option to us. I don't know how I could say it any better. And the fifth reason is that the Christian system works. There's a wonderful book written by Alvin Schmidt, which is called Under the Influence. This book talks about the effect that Christianity has had And we're talking about what Christianity actually teaches here now. I know there have been things done that were horrible in the name of Christianity. We're not talking about the Ku Klux Klan. We're not talking about the abuse. We're not talking about the Crusades. Those things were done in opposition to what Jesus taught. But women's rights, the role of women, the positions of women in life, the importance of caring for the homeless, those needing food, the aged, those needing medical attention. The value of human life, unique to the teachings of Christ. And in our world today, that should be abundantly clear. The importance of caring for children, for raising them in the right way. The importance of education. These are things that have happened because of the teachings of Jesus. The thing that impressed me most about Christianity was its potential for good. Give me a better way to live than loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, not returning evil for evil, making your life a life of giving and of caring for others. There was a famous scientist by the name of Pascal who stated what is sometimes called Pascal's analogy. I love the logic of this. If I believe in Jesus and I'm wrong, what have I lost? If I believe in Jesus and I am right, what have I gained? If I don't believe in Jesus and I am wrong, what have I lost? And if I don't believe in Jesus and I am right, what have I gained? I said in our earlier presentation about the inspiration of the Bible that if someone were somehow convinced me there is no God, if I were motivated in some way to return to my atheism, I would still want to live as a Christian. I saw what happens to you when you follow survival of the fittest as your guide to morality and religious action. And for many, many years now, I have lived what I understand to be the Christian way of life. And once again, in the light of a frail, stumbling, bumbling, feeble, pathetic human being, I can see the beauty of Christ in me. I would not want to return to any other life than the Christian life because I have seen the beauty and the love and the compassion and the joy that comes from being able to live as Jesus called me to live. And every time that I've done something that was in contradiction to that I've been reminded of how horrible it is to live without Christ in my life. I believe in Jesus Christ because of the evidence. But I also believe in Jesus Christ because of the wisdom of his teaching and how it has changed my life. And what God's Spirit dwelling in me gives me the capacity to do that I could never do on my own.
0: guys let me queue up the next uh lesson for you it's called what kind what kind of faith do you have read its name there for a second what kind of faith do you have so that was pretty interesting wasn't it uh with the historical Jesus uh, I love stuff like that and I hope you do too but how just how cool would it be to have uh, Joseph and Mary's regime form in your hands. You know, like Justin Mark have that in his hands. So so um let me get this video queued up for you and we'll watch it. Here you go.
1: I have a question for you. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? And I think that question is relevant if you're an atheist. What kind of faith do you have? You have a faith in something. Every human has faith in something or some things. If you're a religious person, what kind of faith do you have? Where where's it come from? Why do you believe what you believe? You know I think this has incredible relevance to the church. There have been studies in recent years that have consistently shown that when Americans are asked what kind of faith do you have, the response that is made is none. That's forty percent of the American population according to every Gallup poll another poll that's been done, Packer-Pews, whatever. There was an article in a magazine called The Gospel Herald by a man by the name of Wayne Turner. And Wayne was talking about what's going on with young people today, with the generations that are now coming through our schools and our colleges. And he asked the question, do churches produce atheists? churches produce atheists and his answer was yeah and I think his answer is right and he lists some points about this he says churches produce atheists because people have not been taught how we know there is a God churches are producing atheists because good questions kids are asking are not being answered and so the logical interpretation is we don't have answers that's been the major cause of churches producing atheists. And maybe a hundred years ago, there was enough social pressure, there was enough peer pressure for people to have faith because of that. <laughs> it's no longer true. The second point he makes is, young people have not seen commitment in adults. Priorities that people have have not included God. And, of course, hypocrisy. And it's an important question to ask. How do we make decisions? Do our children see us include God in the choices we make? Is God at the top of our list? If it's not, why would it be at the top of their list? The third point he raises is that they don't see the importance of faith in their lives. They don't understand that God has given us the way to have the best of everything. God's plan for marriage is because God wants us to have the most stable, the most enduring, the greatest pleasure that a human can endure and enjoy and be blessed with. But they haven't seen that. And they're hit from the media with all kinds of alternatives. And God's plan for marriage is not something just to control us or to take away our joy or to give us freedom. It is God's plan for what is best. So why do people have doubts? They haven't been taught that there's a basis for faith. They have not had their questions answered. They have not seen commitment in adults who claim to be Christians. And they have not seen the relevance of faith to their lives to finding happiness to uh, to understanding that relationships and institutions like marriage are there for a reason to provide the best that God wants for us but I come back to my initial question so so what kind of faith do you have if you have faith or what do you have faith in and let me suggest to you that for a lot of us our faith is an inherited faith I do a lot of work in prisons I do a lot of work with young people in retreats and youth rallies. And in discussions with them, I say to them, well, do you go to church? Yeah. (laughs) The body language says a lot. Well, why do you go to church? And the line I hear very frequently is, well, it's a small price to pay for peace at home. It's a small price to pay for peace at home. So when they're not at home, what happens? (laughs) When they go to college, what happens? Well, they don't have price to pay at home anymore. So they never darken the door of the church again. When I was at Indiana University, the university used to have a a deal where they told churches the number of students who identified that church as where their faith was. And in my senior year at Indiana University, the number was in the 600s. But I could count on two hands the number of kids that showed up at any church in the area. Inherited faith. I had an inherited faith because mom and dad were atheists. So my faith was an inherited faith. By the time I was eight years old, I was saying to people, "I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God." And here's this eight-year-old kid, and my father used to laugh and say, hey, "That's my boy." I had an inherited faith. And again, I say to you, whether you're religious, whether you're atheist, whatever, is your faith inherited, or have you just accepted something? You see, acceptance work. Reality comes around. For me, reality came around. Atheism did not work. I did not find the joy and the peace and the love and all the things I thought being an atheist would bring. So I had to relook at the evidence. The second area that we see is people have blind faith. Faith that is based on emotions. And religious people have relied upon blind faith for a long, long time. What that involves is being stampeded into a response. I'm not a preacher. I'm a school teacher. I'm not a person that can motivate people emotionally. But when I watch the famous preachers on television or in the pulpit, of the churches where I might be attending. The leadership and the people want somebody that can really move people. <laughs> and you see, the idea is, we aren't so concerned about facts, we aren't so concerned about logic, we're not so concerned about practicality. What we're concerned about is, do we have somebody who can move people, who can make them emotionally responsive? And so the response is blind. The problem is, once again, reality comes around. Death happens. Enemies succeed. Is that biblical? Oh, listen to David, Psalms 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Blind faith isn't working. Psalms thirteen: How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And every day I have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph on me? Look on me and answer, O Lord, my God. If you're a Christian, you ever, you ever yelled at God? I have. I have when when things happened that were just catastrophic. I've yelled at God, just like David. I think God understands. I think God knows how tough life can be. See, I'm suggesting to you that our faith needs to be evidential. What I mean is not an inherited faith. You don't have faith just because somebody dragged you to church three times a week. You don't have faith just because that's what grandma and grandpa believe. You don't have faith just because, well, my mom will go nuts if I don't go to church. You don't have faith because somebody stampeded you into a response. You know, I've, I've known preachers who will seed responses in a gospel meeting. They'll have somebody come forward just to break the ice, just to provide momentum. I've been in camps where one young person comes forward and immediately that precipitates a flood of other kids coming forward. So and so went down the aisle, I followed him. Okay, so you followed his faith. It's blind. No, you, you you shouldn't have blind faith. You shouldn't have an inherited faith. You need to have evidential faith. And that's biblical. Romans 1, verse 20. Look carefully at this statement. God's qualities, his eternal powers, and divine nature can be clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Not from what Grandpa believed, not because I am emotionally worked up to the point of responding without thought. We can know there is a God through the things he has made. In Psalms 19, the first verse, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Man, you can go on the web right now, APOD, NASA's site, and every day you can see a new picture in the cosmos which gives you a picture of the, of the size and the magnitude and the power of the creation in which we live and thus of the God who created it. The Bible tells us, I will praise you, Lord, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Oh, this machine you're looking at, old as it is and decrepit as it is, is an incredible machine. A machine that has lasted now for nearly 80 years without a valve job. Without a, without a new transmission. Now, i got to admit, sometimes I need a new transmission. But I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is because of the fact that I was created with purpose, with intelligence. We have an area of our work called Dandy Designs. We have a website called Dandy Designs. We have material that is connected in our books with Dandy Designs. And it's just one example after another of design features in the creation which speak eloquently of the fact that we are not a product of chance. The more we study the cosmos, the more we move into the field of quantum mechanics, the more we see in outer space, the more we see the evidence. The psalmist says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In 1 Peter, the third chapter in verse 16, we're told to be ready to give an answer to the hope that is within us. How do we do that? Well, we're first of all told to do it with gentleness and with respect. But we do that by telling people why we believe. And it isn't convincing to somebody to say, well, I believe because mom and dad believe. That's not going to help them. It's not going to help people. Well, I got emotionally disturbed and I came down the aisle because I was so in such a state of anxiety. No. What they want to see is evidence. And one of the best examples of that is Acts 17, chapter. Beginning with verse 16, where Paul talks to the philosophers and he talks about all the things they had seen around them that led them to create deities, one of which was the unknown God. And then he describes that God in terms that makes more and more sense to us today. In Him, we live and move and have our being. The spiritual concept of God that we have discussed repeatedly in this series. In Mark, the ninth chapter, beginning with verse 22, Jesus, but you can do anything. Take pity on us and help us. This is a father who has a child that has a major difficulty physically. I can relate to that father. I have a child with multiple birth defects. And so just like that father, I have cried out, God help us. But what's interesting here is what Jesus says to him. Jesus says everything is possible. Everything is possible for him who believes. And the father says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief help my unbelief. And if you're struggling with faith, I hope I can help your unbelief. Not because I have all the answers, not because I'm any pillar of faith, but because there is so much evidence. There is so much. And if you read on through this discussion, you see Jesus giving the Father examples of involvement, ways of putting his life in the hands of the God who created and I suspect his father from that point on was a new person. I know I was. See, doubt isn't bad. Unresolved doubt is bad, but doubt isn't bad. And we resolve doubt by looking at evidence. You know, one of the best examples of this is Thomas. There's a point in the life of Thomas, one of Jesus' followers, when he is the tower of faith. In John 11 in verse 16... Jesus tells the disciples he's going back into Judea to a place that has been hostile to him, where a place they're probably going to try to kill him. And Thomas, this is doubting Thomas, says to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. (laughs) That doesn't sound much like doubting Thomas, does it? At one point in his life, he's a pillar of, of Strength, belief-wise, faith-wise. But we all know in John the 20th chapter, beginning with verse 24, when, when things are crumbling around him, Thomas is the one who crumbles. And he says, unless I see the evidence, <laughs> unless I see the evidence, I just can't believe So how does Jesus respond to this? And we talked about this earlier. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't chastise him. He doesn't put him off. He doesn't put out. He meets the man's needs. Here, Thomas. Put your finger in my hands. Look at the evidence, Thomas. Put your hand into my side. Look at the evidence, Thomas. And believe, and what's interesting is that when Thomas sees this, his response is, my Lord and my God. But what Jesus says is, blessed are you, Thomas, because you have seen and believed. At least he was willing to deal with the evidence. Many people today just simply will not deal with the evidence. So, blessed are you, Thomas. You've looked at the evidence and you've responded. More blessed are those who have not seen. And believed. You have an inherited faith? Okay. If that's enough, great. You were emotionally stampeded to a response? I'm glad somebody had the ability to move you. And if you built on that and have built a solid faith, wonderful. But for many of us, I'm just too weak to do that. I have to have evidence just like Thomas. And God has never called us to be blind in our faith. In Proverbs, the eighth chapter, which we looked at in the video on wisdom, we see wisdom talking, and wisdom is saying to us, to us feeble-minded people, said, look at this, people, and believe. Read Proverbs 8, especially through the verses 22 through 31. But, uh, and also the first couple of verses. What happens when you don't do this? What happens when you don't build your faith? You you can't stop in growing. Well, Romans 1 gives us an example. In Romans 1, beginning with verse 18, we're told the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all uh, godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship, serve and worship created things rather than the creator. And it goes on to describe where they end up morally. When we quit growing, we start dying. And that's not just true physically, or spiritually. We're told to be ready to give an answer to the reason of the hope that's within us to every person. 1 Peter 3 verse 15. That includes us. We need to grow. We need to search out the answers. And the Bible talks to us about salvation. It doesn't put us in the realm of inheritance or emotional response. Acts 2 and verse 40, Peter told the people, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. We don't have to stay immersed in the destructive culture in which we live. In Acts, the 26th chapter and verse 28, when the Roman ruler is trying to deal with all the evidence Paul has given him, the actual translation says, do you really think in such a short time you can convince me to become a Christian? It takes time. You need to invest in building a workable faith, an evidential faith. But all of us must choose whom we will serve. The old Abedin in Joshua 24 and verse 15 still applies to us today. Don't be You need to know why you believe what you believe. Have a working faith. Not something that's just acceptance, not just something that's based on feelings. Knowing why you believe what you believe. And understand that God is not a magician. He's not a wizard. He's an engineer. And the evidence around us as we reviewed in the Rational God Discussion enables us to have an intelligent, logical faith based upon your ability to think and reason and wisdom. And the Does God program is here to serve you, to provide you with whatever answers we can. If we don't know the answer, we'll put you in contact with someone who does. We are here to serve you, and I appreciate your watching this video series, and we look forward to hearing from you.
0: All right. Well, welcome back. I hope you have enjoyed this series. There's been several things that uh, I've disagreed with John, uh, Mr. Clayton on, uh, and we've discussed those. But I think those last two lessons were two of the best. I uh, wholeheartedly agree with us being thinking people, uh, and that's kind of his premise with this whole series, is that we, uh, we put in the hard work and we think through our faith and make it our own. Uh, And that is something we 100% have to do. So with that being said, welcome to the conclusion of the Does God Exist series. We will uh, have these three different DVD sets for you available in the library (laughs) starting tonight. Uh, And you can check those out on your own. Or, At the very least, you can watch this one online. I think that's GodExist.TV. Um, or you can watch them on YouTube, just, uh, search for them in in YouTube. Um, tonight is our 7 p.m. Wednesday night devotional. So be looking forward to that. And I uh, hope to see you there. See you guys next time. I guess we're going to, uh, stop doing this. This will be our last online digital Wednesday night class. Uh, so. Um, I will not see you next week here. Uh, hopefully see you in person tonight and uh, and hopefully we'll be getting classes again very soon on Wednesday afternoons. All right. See you guys. Have a good one.